You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. I want to address this morning, just uh, felt like I needed to address, appropriate to address a little bit about what's going on in our country right now. And this, this stems from a very moving experience I had, a, a deeply moving spiritual experience that I had last Monday as I joined uh, a number of folks from our church and participated uh, in the peaceful protest that was held in Frisco. And it was a humbling experience to sort of walk amid a, a sea of diverse people uh, walking down El Dorado Boulevard, something I would never have thought would be happening in Frisco, uh, but uh, just joining a sea of people calling out for justice for George Floyd and, and other black Americans who have lost their lives unjustly. It was a blessing to see our mayor participate in the march, our chief of police participate in the march. Uh, The purpose of the gathering, at least as I understood it, was to uh, draw attention to the fact that all people deserve equal justice. I participated for a number of reasons. One was to support uh, members of our church. Uh, I went to learn. I went really as a student. I went because I'm grieved, uh, like we all are. I went for that reason. Uh, I, I, I went to add my voice to the voices of people who actually have suffered racial injustice. I, I certainly didn't feel qualified to participate. I've received, I've been the, the object of very little prejudice in my life. And I have never been the object of physical violence or the threat of physical violence because of the color of my skin. And yet, I'm beginning to grasp some of the issues, and I, I wanted to, 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 to do something, even something very small, like going to a learner, going as a learner to affirm uh, that all people deserve justice. So, while walking in the middle of this crowd that was declaring the very basic and obvious truth that black people's lives matter just as much as anyone else's lives, uh, I I thought to myself, uh, I thought, yeah, I believe this, but why do I believe it? Why do I believe that all people deserve justice? Why do I believe that they deserve protection? Why do I believe that people should be punished uh, who commit acts of injustice? Why do I believe that we must maintain the dignity and the value of all people? Well, I thought it's not because this is a hot issue right now and I'll win some woke points for being out here. That's not the reason I went. It's not because it's self-evident, because it's not self-evident by nature to anyone that they're not superior to someone else. So it's not self-evident. I don't believe it because I'm an American, because while this is a stated value, this is not a practiced value for the majority of our history. Black people haven't had equal rights legally for the majority of our nation's history. So there's nothing about naturally being an American that I would feel that all people deserve justice. 
It's not because of my politics that I was out there. It's certainly not because I'm a good person. Not at all. This isn't virtue signaling to tell you I was out there. Quite the opposite. Uh, It was not because I was a good person. As I was marching, I thought, I believe this. I believe this because it's in the Bible. This is a theological conviction for me that all people deserve equal justice because all people are created by God. That is the foundation of justice. That is the point at which justice flows for the Christian. The truth that all people are created by God, therefore all people deserve the dignity that God has conferred upon them. Really just have two points and some application. The first point is we are created by God. The passage that Chauncey read for us this morning, we are created by God. Genesis 1, the scripture says that God created all things. But when we reach the sixth day, something different happens. At the sixth day, in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. So we get this unusual picture of the Godhead deliberating uh, internally. The Bible teaches there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this case, there is this deliberation that something mysterious, something glorious, something unique is going on as we get this window into the divine council discussing the creation of humanity. Verse 27 is loaded with meaning, but the the point is clear about verse 27, and that's that God created humanity. It's mentioned three times. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The emphasis is that God created. And this is so important when we think about matters like biblical justice That we are not the result of random time and chance, but we are personally created by God. And not just Adam and Eve. For in the Psalms, the psalmist writes, Psalm 139, You formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's room. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Each life fearfully and wonderfully made, each life sacred, each life valuable, each life dignified by the virtue of being created by God. If there is no God, If there is no God and you are just the random result of billions of years of progressive development from a primitive life form, then why does your life matter? Why does anybody's life matter? The reason lives matter, the reason people matter, the reason people have dignity and value is because God created us. It's the source of of our creation. It's why we're here to begin with. That's where our intrinsic value is found. If there is no God, then what is the basis for dignity and value? There's no personal creator. How do humans establish an intrinsic value? How do humans establish their meaning? How do humans establish their purpose if there is no God? That's why people who believe the Scripture, we have something to say in these days. Because of all people, we should be most convinced that all 
that, that life matters, that people have dignity and value. Secondly, he not only says, the Bible only, not only teaches us that we're created by God, but that we're created in his image. It says something more, the mountains are created by God, but we're created in his image. We're not gods, but we are created in the likeness of God. Verse 26, let us make man in our image and likeness. Verse 27, he created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. So we're created in the image of God. What does that mean? Probably three things. If you, if you look throughout Scripture, and particularly Genesis 1 and 2, and consider uh, what it is uh, that's described in the creation of humanity, uh, being in the image of God means probably three things. One is resemblance, that each person has characteristics that resemble the Creator and distinguish us from the creation. All people are created to resemble God. In what ways? Well, consider this. In chapter 1, we find God creating, and we realize that God has intelligence. God has reasoning as he orders the creation. And so each one of us is created with intelligence and the ability to reason, unlike the rest of creation. No, No other part of creation can reason like humans. We are the very pinnacle of God's creation. God speaks, and he creates humans with the ability to communicate and speak as well. God appreciates what is good morally and aesthetically. After each day of creation, he says, and he saw that it was good. After the sixth day, he saw it was very good. But God is making an assessment of what is morally and aesthetically good. And we have that ability as well. God is creative and gives us the ability to create. We are in his image God is a moral being and creates us with a conscience so that we know right from wrong. And even after the fall in chapter 3 of Genesis, we have a marred image, but we are still image bearers of God. We still have a moral sense. And that's why not just the nation, but if, if you've looked recently, the world is outraged by the injustice of a murder like the murder of George Floyd, because there's, an in, there's a moral sense in us about right and wrong. Where do we get that? From school, from your mom? We get that innately from God, the sense that there is a right and a wrong. Number two, we're we're relational. So how do we image God? We resemble him in our characteristics. We're relational as he is. God God is a relational being. He's triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we see that in verse 26 as clear as anywhere in Scripture where he says, let us make man in our image, that God has existed in an eternal loving relationship. So God is relational, and we are created relational as well with the capacity, first of all, to relate with God. And to relate with one another. You see, God relates with people, first of all. In verse 28 we read, he gives a command. He says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He doesn't give a command like that to any other part of creation. So God doesn't give a command to the bushes uh, or something like that. But he gives it to humans because he's relating with us. So we have a capacity to relate with God which gives each person dignity and value as well, that they have uh, the ability to encounter and relate with their creator, but also with one another. He says, let us make man in our own image, and uh, male and female, he created them. 
So he creates us. That's probably saying more than just marriage there. Obviously, marriage is a relationship. But for people who aren't married, we all have an ability to relate with other people. We have relational capacity. We have the capacity for love, for selflessness, for care. These are, these are images of the nature of God stamped from the beginning on, on humanity. The capacity for empathy, which is one you see right now being expressed in many ways. Where does empathy come from? It comes from being created in the image of God as a relational being. And as Christians... We should, be, we should have a deeper understanding of empathy than anyone because we believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that God came into our reality, our brokenness, our death, our condemnation, that God was empathetic to us when we could not rescue ourselves. He came to rescue us. Of all people, Christians should understand empathy and get it. We may not, but we should. We have, we have the values in the Scripture, and we have the experience ourselves. If you're a Christian, then you have tasted empathy that's beyond description, for God has entered into your suffering and given you new life, eternal life. Resemblance, relational, lastly, representative. As image bearers, we are created to have dominion over the creation, over the fish, over the birds, over the animals, the text says. We're charged to be fruitful, we're charged to multiply, we're charged to fill the earth and have dominion over all, the text says in verse 28. So God rules over all, but God delegates dominion, God rather, delegates dominion and authority to humans. We're called to rule over his creation. We're called to bear fruit and to flourish in all of our responsibilities. So God God gives us meaning to our lives, that our relationships, our families, our work, our worship, it all has value because he has given us this command to take dominion, to, ex- to be fruitful, to exercise authority in whatever we are doing. And in that, we image God because God works, God creates, God maintains, God relates. And so when we are going about our work, when we are relating, when we are with loving our families, that we are imaging the, the nature of the character of God. We're called to be flourishing. Even though the world is broken, we live post-chapter 3. But we're still, that mandate to flourish is still God's ideal for us. And in this season that we're in as a country right now, it's very helpful for us to realize that as a Christian, my concern is not just that I get that. It's not just that I come to verse 28 and say, give me and mine that, but that I also share a concern that all image bearers are flourishing. That as a Christian, it's not just me. It's not just the church even, but it's that people would have the freedom to flourish. That's a key point in this moment that my desire to do my part in ensuring the flourishing of others. That's a, that's a biblical justice theme that we see from the later. But that we read this and we say, I want that for all image bearers. I want that for all image bearers. So in sum, we're all created by God. We all bear his image, even after the fall. 
We all derive our value and dignity from this biblical truth that we are created to resemble him, that we are created to be relational like him, that we are created to exercise uh, dominion and be representative of him. This is where we get our dignity and value, and it comes from God. This is why civil rights leader, he's still alive, I think he's in his late 80s now, uh, John Perkins once said, you don't give people dignity, you affirm it. God gives dignity, and we have the opportunity to affirm the dignity of others when their dignity has been called into question. This is why justice matters. When the dignity of any human is minimized, when the dignity of any human is devalued in any way, we should be affected by that as fellow image bearers. And when a group of people have historically experienced the dismissal of their dignity, as black Americans have frequently, historically, and yet even today. You see, racism at its, at its basis is not only a fr- an affront to a person or an affront to a group of people, it's an affront to God Almighty. It is, it is stealing dignity that he has conferred. It is an affront to God. He is the creator. He created people to image him, to be like him. He grants equal dignity to all image bearers, and so must we. Martin Luther King says there are no gradations of the image of God. There are no rankings in the image of God. All, dig- all having dignity, all having value, all created by God. Now, I've addressed black Americans, but that, it's much broader than that, isn't it? Anyone that would be marginalized, all women in the image of God, all immigrants in the image of God, all disabled folk in the image of God. You, you pick your group who, uh, or pick your person or your group who in any culture experiences something of a mar- marginalization. The poor are created in the image of God whoever it may be, those in prison created in the image of God, the sick, the elderly created in the image of God. Whatever group, it doesn't matter, this truth is so important that people matter because they're created by God and in his image. So how do we apply that in this cultural moment? Why am I, I'm basically laying a foundation, biblically, theologically, for how we should respond in this time. Amen. Uh, Here's the first thing. Pray. This is a season to pray, and I'll tell you why. I think there's a few, it's always a season to pray, but I think it's a season for a couple reasons. One is, it's a season to pray for our own hearts. It is a season for every Christian to pray a self-examining prayer. Lord, search me. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. To, to take the conversation with me and God, not my evaluation and my critique of what's going on out there. How about praying for my heart? It's a time to pray, given this cultural historical moment. It's a time to pray for our black brothers and sisters who feel and uh, a um, tremendous pain, loss, grief, sorrow, anger in this season. 
You don't have to be black to feel that. But I'm just saying, obviously, for our black brothers and sisters, this is a time to pray. To pray for the African-American community, for the African-American church and witness ministry in our country. But that's an appropriate prayer. It's a time to pray for our nation's leaders, our local leaders, our governor and, and leaders at a state level, our president, uh, our Senate and, and uh, House it's a time to pray uh, for our leaders. It's a time to pray uh, for our police officers, those who have responsibility to, uh, to exercise uh, authority in the way they do in our country, to pray, for their, to pray for their safety and to pray for their repentance where needed, uh, but to pray for their safety, their security, God's blessing upon them as well. So it's a time to pray, isn't it? Uh, Another reason I think it's a time to pray is because of what we studied in Daniel, that this is a spiritual battle. Uh, We're talking about something that is historical and deep and spiritual. I really believe the reason prayer is important right now, because what is happening right now is not a battle between fundamentally the left and the right. It's not a battle between black and white. It's a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. When we're talking about justice for people, we're talking about the kingdom, values of the kingdom of God. We're talking about why did Jesus come to redeem and to restore. Ephesians 6 says, I mean, I know this can feel so horizontal. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Well, they're doing this. They're doing that. They said this. They said that. It can feel so horizontal, this political party against that one, this ideology against that one, this history against that one. It can seem so horizontal, but it's vertical, I believe. Ephesians 6 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the power, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I believe you can see the principalities and powers work, and I believe you can feel their forces in a palpable way in these days. There's anger and hatred and violence. This is a time to cry out, God, bring your peace, bring your justice, bring your grace and your gospel to bear in a time of hurting. It's a spiritual battle, and by that, I don't mean that we go out and start calling out, you know, this demon or that demon over that area. I mean, we go to God and ask God to do battle uh, based on his victory in Christ. Pray. Number two, listen and learn. It's a time to listen and learn. Let me address those in the majority culture. That would be me. Um, and in our country, that, that's, uh, that's white people, the majority culture. You may be from another nation. We have a lot of internationals in our country. With you visit your home, you might be in the majority culture there. I don't know. But I'm talking about in the U.S., the majority culture. It's a time, I think a, a key scripture is to be quick to hear, slow to speak. Quick to hear, slow to speak. That means leaning in to learn and to fight by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what I think the season we're in. To fight with the power of the Holy Spirit, the yeah buts. The yeah buts. Do you know what the yeah buts are? It's, it's when you agree but then feel compelled 
to balance, compelled to correct, compelled to adjust someone else's experience that you've not had, compelled to drop some data that they may not know in light of their, their experience. Listen, if I could just be real, I, I am uh, currently reading a book that was recommended to me. It's written by a woman, a, uh, a black woman, and it's about racial reconciliation in the church. It is a, it is a wonderful book. Here's my experience reading the book. I, I was given the book. I, am, it's, I love the book, and I'm reading the book to learn. That's my posture. I'm going to read this book to learn. And as I'm reading the book, there are numbers of times where I want to talk out loud to her and balance. So she's saying this is my, my experience, but I want to say, yeah, but it's not my experience. Yeah, but have you thought about this? Well, what about that? What well, I'm wanting to, rather than posture myself as a learner, because the, the reason I'm reading the book is to learn, to humble myself and learn. And I find myself just giving the yeah, buts. And, and yeah, buts don't reflect humble listening in a season and in a time when listening is key. They don't reflect the humble learning in a season and a time when humble learning is key. They don't reflect loving another person by entering into their situation and understanding their world and their experience and exercising a little bit of empathy. Now, every husband knows what I'm talking about. When your wife comes to you and she's grieved... And she is upset about an experience she had. She's weeping. Her heart is heavy. She's burdened because of something that has happened. And she pours her heart out to you. And you say, yeah, but, and then you lay out the perspective that she didn't know. You lay out the balancing, the adjustment. You don't empathize. You correct. Enjoy your night on the sofa. Because that's not going well. Now, I'm not comparing a marriage uh, to racial reconciliation. I'm simply saying that when, yeah, but is not creating and cultivating the heart of empathy, and it's something we need and we need to put on display as Christians. I don't blame the world for yeah, but. They don't know Jesus Christ, they don't have the Spirit of God in them. But for the Christian, yeah, but. Is damaging. Here's the thing about yeah, buts. You don't relieve the pain. I don't relieve the pain of racism in that moment. I inflame it and make it worse. I I make the person's experience, at least that's what I've understood in talking and hearing from others, it makes it worse. And it's common. Yeah, George Floyd's death was terrible, but looting. Ahmaud Arbery, his shooting, that was bad. But, wasn't he trespassing? Yeah, our country has a racism problem. But, I mean, it's not what it used to be. Can't you be grateful? We made progress. Yeah, but. It's time to listen. To affirm someone's dignity as an image bearer of God. And when we posture ourselves as learners, here's what I found. I got a lot to learn. 
Let's listen and learn. Let's read history. Let's understand the experience of others. If you have a black friend, it's worth asking them, talking about their experience and putting aside self-defense and self-justification. As Christians, we should take initiative to reach out. And that's important because it is an exhausting, I can't say this from experience, but from what I know, from what I've been told, uh, it is an exhausting burden for black people to feel the responsibility to educate us about their daily struggle. Not only to struggle, but then to feel the burden and responsibility to say something so that I get it. Let me take the initiative, let me learn, let me go with a humble posture, and let me ask God to create a sense of empathy to relieve the burden of another, to bear one another's burdens, as the book of Galatians says. To bear one another's burdens. Number three, be suspicious. This is a time for us to be suspicious of our own hearts. To be suspicious of our own hearts. We just read chapter one. If you go to chapter three, you'll find that there is a fall and death enters the world. And here's what happens. Everything is broken. Everything is broken. Sin touches everything. It brings corruption. It brings death. Everything is broken. Not just individuals. Every system is broken. Every system has uh, the effect of sin it has the effect of people. It has this, the effect of principalities and powers and their rule and reign at points. And so everything is broken. And here's the thing about sin, including me. Here's the thing about sin is that the fundamental nature of sin is that it's deceptive. Sin works best when we don't think we sin. The devil's greatest trick is to say he doesn't exist. That probably applies with racism as well. The devil's greatest sin is to say, his greatest trick is to say he doesn't exist. And yet the Bible says we are sinners. Sin is blinding. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? My heart deceives me. My heart will always be self-justifying. My heart will always blame others. My heart will always push back to get the light off of me and my heart. That's what, that's what we do as sinners. And so as we read, pray, listen, learn, I think I should expect the conviction of God at some area of my life with regard to this topic. The cluster of sins, and it's a cluster, the cluster of sins that, that uh, are part of racism. See, the problem is we think we're innocent because I've never harmed a person of another race. I never acted in a hateful way. I certainly never physically harmed anybody of another race. I don't wake up each morning hating people of another race. How could I be, how could I have any racism in me? I don't have a feeling of disdain for other people and live with that, we say. And so it couldn't be me. But racism goes to the cluster of sins, goes to our attitudes. It's prejudging a person. It's assessing a person based on their race. And it's so hard for anyone in the church to admit this. Could we have a moment here and just consider that I can come to community group 
and I can say, I'm battling greed. Yes, brother, me too. Let's pray for you. I'm battling pride. I'm battling uh, lust. I'm battling anger. Oh, we understand that. I'm battling impatience. Yes. I'm battling all kinds of selfishness. I can come to the group and say, I am a sinner. I am blinded by sin. I am fallen. I am a greedy, proud, lustful, angry, impatient, selfish man. But a racist? No way. No way have I struggled with that one. That's the one that I don't struggle with because i got a black friend. That's my proof. I don't hate black people. I don't have. That's not in me. And yet the scripture reveals that James 2, the sin of partiality, which that has to do with rich and poor, but that the heart of that, showing partiality, judging other, making negative assessments of people because of their race. I, I, I can do this. I can, and at times do, assess people by their appearance, their ethnicity, make a judgment about them, that group of people, that group of people. We all can do this. I, I can think that my thoughts, my ways, interact with another culture somewhere, um, you know, anywhere. And I can think my thoughts, my ways, my culture, they're just, it's subtle. I'm not thinking, I'm not looking over and going, I'm better than that guy, better than her, better than them, better than their whole race. I, I'm not doing that. But I think subtly my way's better. I'm right. I know better. I can judge people of another race, another religion. Think, of the, oh, they're a Muslim? Okay, I know, I know some stuff about them already. It's so subtle. Judge people because of their religion, their culture, their ethnicity. It's just a subtle thing that I'll never see if I don't say, Lord, search my heart and help me as a Christian. To say, as soon as I say, I would never commit that sin, I'm in dangerous ground. Need to be careful lest I fall, the scripture says at that point. So there'll be no change until we acknowledge what's real in my heart, and it grieves me, and I need grace to be forgiven, and I need grace to change. Listen, friends, it is easy, and praise God it's easy. Praise God it's easy for the unbeliever. Praise God it's easy to be outraged at the death of George Floyd. Thankfully, that's an outrage, universal outrage. Thankfully, it's easy to be outraged by the death of George Floyd. It is not easy to examine my own heart. It is hard to pray like the tax collector who says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is easy to pray like a Pharisee who says, I thank you, God, I'm not like others who are racist. That is the attitude of the Pharisee. And Phariseeism runs deep in us all for all kinds of matters and issues. I'm not like them. It would be better to stop and say, search my heart, O God. I don't know my heart, O God. I'm not going to confess false sins that aren't there, but show me what's there. I pray, I listen, I learn. I take apart a heart of suspicion towards my sin, period this one in in particular, and then take a step. It's often hard to know what to do. I don't know what to do at times like this. I mean, very difficult. I mean, a few things we can do. I think we can talk to our children. If you have kids, I think we can talk to our children about the theology of creation, that we're all created in the image of God. 
So don't teach them kumbaya, like all people are great and wonderful, we're all equal. Let's go to the Bible and say, why is the Bible, what's the biblical foundation for why everyone has dignity? So I think we can train the next generation. If you have a place of influence, you can speak up. Some of us in the marketplace, in your job, you have ways that you could foster equity, that you could seek to ensure that others flourish. All people flourish. Minorities, women, the disabled, immigrants, as I mentioned earlier, it could be any group of people. All flourish. Where, where I work, I'm going to do everything I can. If I have power in hiring, uh, promoting, setting formal policy, I, I want to do whatever I can to ensure that there is an equity uh, in a fallen world. Uh, you can vote. Not, not right now you can't, but you can coming up for candidates whose platform highlights justice in all categories. You can speak with a black friend I mentioned earlier, a person of another race, it doesn't have someone of another race to understand their experience, their perspective, or another religion. I've asked Muslims about their experience. I was deeply moved talking to a Muslim high school student, a girl telling me that when she wore her hijab to school that she was repeatedly mocked for being a terrorist. It deeply, that's, that, that affected me. That's in our city. So we can talk to someone whose experience is different than ours and ask and learn. Lastly, we can press into the church community, and I'll be done here. These are divided days in the culture, but may they not be divided days in the church because the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church should be the one place where there is unity. It will not happen. There is no candidate that will, bring, that will change anybody's heart. There is no, I'm for candidates, I'm for policy, but there's no, nothing can change the human heart. I think we know that. And, and, and there is no society, there's no club out there that's going to be adequately inclusive to show unity, except the church where young and old All races, all people, all backgrounds, rich and poor, all perspectives, different political positions can come together around Jesus Christ and be unified in this risen Savior, Jesus, who shed his blood that we might be one. John 17, this was his, the biggest prayer of Jesus in the whole Bible is him praying, make them one. That's the heart of the Lord. That's the heart of the Lord. That we would that equal we would not only be equal image bearers, but that we would be people with new hearts, empowered for unity. Recently, I had a person. I really I really appreciated this frankness. I had a person from our church, a person of color, and she she just said to me that uh, she loves this church. She has served, she's demonstrated her commitment, love, faithfulness. So this is, this is a person who is deep in our church. And she told me recently, I, I don't think our church is that much different than the culture when it comes to addressing some of these racial issues. And I asked her, I drew her out and heard her experience. And when I heard her experience, I said, yeah, we're, we're, there's some clear humanity on display around here. We, we need to grow. We need to learn. I didn't know that, didn't think that, wasn't aware of that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's helpful. We shouldn't be surprised that any area could be brought up to say, we need to grow in a church, we need to grow as a church. And our love for this, the love for that, our expression of this. 
but it affected my heart. And I thought, yeah, our vision is to be a church that's ethnically diverse, which is happening, has happened more and more in the past couple of years. But we want to grow in grace to express the grace of God in our unity together. I'm going to uh, read you a passage of Scripture, and then Caleb's going to come and pray for us. You can start making your way, Caleb, if you want. Uh, This is Ephesians 4. This is what the church is supposed to look like. It is difficult. It is messy. It is stepping on people's toes always. It is misunderstanding. It's saying something clumsy, and I didn't want to say anything because I don't want to offend, and then I said something, and it was kind of clumsy, and I wish it didn't come out that way. It's all that. It's awkward. It's... But man, it's where the gra- if we run towards this, it's where the, the grace of God will meet us and put on display. Our pray is, prayer is that we'd be on, on display for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, Ephesians 4. Listen to these verses. I think they're very, very important. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another. Thank you for bearing with me. Let's bear with one another. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.